0: Welcome to Medical Matters Weekly with Dr. Trey Dobson, presented by Southwestern Vermont Healthcare and Catamount Access Television. Welcome, everyone. Today is July 12th, 2022, and we are recording this show for a July 20th program. I'm Trey Dobson, Chief Medical Officer at Southwestern Vermont Medical Center and an emergency medicine physician with Dartmouth Health. And this is Medical Matters Weekly, It's a show about the aspects of healthcare that matter to you most. And my guest today is Dr. Esther Sternberg. She is a researcher, author, and professor at the University of Arizona, which I believe, are you in Arizona right now, Esther?
1: No, I am in
0: Vermont, as you can see, out the window. (laughs) Beautiful. That is awesome. Well, thank you. And And welcome, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Just briefly, and we'll, we'll put um, Esther's full bio up on the website, but a few things. She's internationally recognized for discoveries in the science and of the mind-body interaction in illness, as well as in healing, and the role of the place in well-being. She's the inaugural Andrew, is it pronounced Weill Chair or Weill? Weill. Weill, okay. Um, certainly heard of An- Dr. Andrew Weill many times, but I've actually never known how to pronounce his name. Uh, in, 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 so she is the inaugural Andrew Weil Chair for Research in Integrative Medicine and is the research director for the Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine at the University of Arizona in Tucson, which, by the way, is a, an incredibly well-known location. We even have providers from around this area who have trained or at least done some coursework there. Founding director of the UA Institute on Place, Well-Being, and Performance And many other things, including uh, the author of several books, uh, one, Healing Spaces and the Science, no, not Healing Spaces, the Science of Place and Well-Being. Uh, So that's fantastic. So again, welcome and tell us real quick, what's your connection to Vermont?
1: Ah, well, my significant other, uh, Mark Abrams, uh, lives here. And so when I was recruited to uh, go to the University of Arizona, we decided to do winters in Tucson and summers in Vermont. And so we don't have to shovel snow and we get the best (laughs) we get the best of
0: both. You don't have to shovel snow. and You don't have to deal with intense heat. So that really is it is the best. Um, So tell us a little bit about um, where you're from and then eventually you can end up to sort of how you got into medicine and your interest in integrative therapies.
1: Sure. I'm from Montreal, so for me, Vermont is my old stomping grounds. Uh, I used to go south to Vermont. Americans think this is very funny. I, we from Montreal think Vermont is south, and uh, I'd ski, um, you know, in the in the mountains around here, in Jay or a Stowe, and um, you know. So I love Vermont. As a child, we used to take road trips down to Vermont, um, and so I grew up in Montreal, and. Um, you wanted to know how I got into medicine. Sure. Well, my father was a physician. He was a professor of medicine at the University of Montreal. He was a pioneer in nuclear medicine. And um, I worked in his lab when I was 15 years old. I, at that time, didn't want to be a doctor. I loved worms, actually. (laughs) (laughs) I read a three-volume book on worms in grade 10. um i love paleontology i didn't think i wanted to be a doctor but my um my high school guidance counselor this shows you how much of an impact on on kids your teachers and your guidance counselors can have he uh, suggested that i apply to the mcgill university seven-year medical program mm-hmm. right out of high school and i said well i don't want to be a doctor and he said well that's good because if you don't get accepted then You won't care if you do get accepted, you have three years to make up your mind. Yeah, yeah. Because you have to go through the Bachelor of Science anyway. So that actually informed. So by the time I got to the third year and I had to decide, do I go into medicine or graduate with a bachelor's in science, I loved medicine, and I realized that I loved people, and I loved working with people, and I loved the detective work of figuring out a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my father re- really played an important role. My aunt, who was a professor of physiology at McGill, also played an important role as role models in the field. And um, and I um, I came to love medicine and graduated from McGill University in Montreal.
0: I love how you um, emphasize the in, investigative piece of medicine. I I think it's no coincidence that a lot of doctors like true crime novels uh, because <laughs> there's an investigative piece to it.
1: Yeah, my father loved true crime novels, and I love uh, Father Brown and uh, you know those British uh, murder mysteries. I love those
0: things. Right, right. Very similar to trying to figure out disease processes and what's yes, occurring. Yes,
1: exactly.
0: So from medical school then you went to the national institutes of health and we've talked on this show over the past couple years about the nih and um, sometimes the public is not as familiar with nih as as much as doctors are of course because a lot of research uh, goes through there in fact we were just talking about this a couple weeks ago tell us about your experience there
1: well first of all i didn't go directly to the national institutes of health i made a little detour to uh washington university in st louis and um And really really what happened is that I was planning to go into medical practice. I had trained as a rheumatologist and arthritis doc at McGill at the Royal Victoria Hospital. And uh, and I decided, because of a single patient whom I had seen um, on an emergency consult on Christmas Eve of 1978, who he was a, a patient who had a really fatal form of, of epilepsy, intention myoclonus. And uh, he was being treated with what was then an experimental drug to change brain serotonin. And he developed an autoimmune inflammatory sclerodermal like disease. And going back to the point about really um, being fascinated by the detective work, the question in the consult was could the drug that this patient? was receiving have caused this autoimmune disease. Well, back in 1978, 79, immunologists didn't believe that there was a brain immune connection. Endocrinologists sort of believed it. Uh, Neurologists didn't believe it. And so this mind-body connection was sort of very woo-woo. And I could not figure out how, I was convinced that that brain uh, connection was there, and that that caused that disease. But I couldn't figure it out by just going to the literature. There was some evidence that suggested that there could be a relationship, but not really. And so that turned my career around from, um, from what was going to be going back into family practice, being the rheumatologist consulting at the clinic in Montreal, to going into a research career. And so that's, you know, that's what led me to do research at Washington University in St. Louis and then to the National Institutes of Health. The National Institutes of Health has two pieces, which again, you know, actually, even um, academic physicians are not often aware of. There's the intramural research program, which is where the researchers are, and there is the extramural research program, which is the part of NIH, the vast majority of NIH that supports research through grants to universities all over the country and in fact, around the world. So I was in the intramural research program and that was established, I think back in the sixties when uh, the goal was to give the researchers the freedom to really address questions that were on the cutting edge that were a little bit outside the box and without having to go through this very rigorous and complex peer review uh, peer review process you know over the years the intramural program now matches the extramural program and there is the similar almost identical peer review process but what it did for us researchers certainly did for me is that we were able to turn on a dime and address urgent public health questions as they arose so I was involved in solving the L-tryptophan eosinophilia myalgia syndrome epidemic, which was related to impure L-tryptophan back in 1989. It caused basically the same illness that I had seen in my first patient back in 1979. And, um, and I had the luxury because I was at the National Institutes of Health to be able within two weeks Uh, of learning about these cases to actually have a study up and running and within just a couple of months, a few months, partner with the FDA and the CDC to figure out the cause of this this illness. Same thing happened after 9-11. We were all able to very quickly turn our attention to um, addressing stress and and the issues of post-traumatic stress and stress that everybody was feeling. Um, same thing during the anthrax attacks in Washington D.C. I immediately turned my research to addressing uh, anthrax lethal toxins. So there was that huge advantage of being within the intramural research program uh, that gave you the freedom to quickly, uh, as I said, turn on a dime and address a public health crisis. And I think even, I haven't. I wasn't there during COVID, but you could see how quickly. NIH was able to partner with um, uh, you know, drug companies with vaccine mag- manufacturers to very quickly ramp up uh, to produce these amazing vaccines. I, I mean, the, the, the speed, warp speed, uh, y- you know, it, unheard of that we should be able to uh, we, the scientific community, should be able to solve these
0: problems so quickly so remarkable. And that's exactly what I was getting ready to say. Is when to launch right into this current SARS-CoV-2 pandemic and, and COVID and say it is remarkable. And I actually, you know, sometimes get people asking, well, why is it not always like this? And, and that's where we have to be a little bit careful because there's not only, you know, the safety concerns, which actually were adhered to quite nicely uh, throughout the 2020, as this was, uh, as all this research was going, but it's also the cause and effect you know um, our our medical knowledge during a lot of this pandemic has come out of actual media interviews rather than uh, peer reviewed journals and that 's okay during an emergency situation. but we have to recognize that we can 't um, put all of our eggs in one basket and say here 's a cause this must be the effect we have to we have to go through." act as quickly as we can, but recognize that uh, that's what peer review is about, that's what long-term uh, studies are about to see is this really uh, a cause and effect type thing. I'm so glad you brought that up uh, because actually that topic itself is so interesting to me and how we get through uh, emergent situations and then, you know, non-emergent situations.
1: Well, you know, just to, to, to say that the, the system, the structure of NIH is set up for the long haul. And It is because of the long haul that the researchers who had discovered the uh, mRNA viruses were in a position to quickly um, uh, ramp up and use them in this situation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Had that technology not been there that was started 10 years before, we wouldn't have been able to
0: do what we did. Right, so remarkable. So let's talk about those connections between stress, emotions, and health. Um, I think that you, know, you, you mentioned in the '70s uh, there was you know quasi acceptance. I think now there's you know almost universal acceptance that in some yeah. way they're related. Um, what what are your thoughts and how you've sort of solidified the science behind these concepts?
1: Well, I'll, I'll go back to what I did when I got to NIH. I was so convinced about this connection because of that single patient. Um, that I began studying actually when I was in St. Louis, began putting the nerve chemical serotonin on macrophages and tissue culture, so immune cells and and when I was in st louis i I could see that i, I that this serotonin, this neurotransmitter, activated macrophages macrophages are the kind of immune cell that goes into a into a wound right away and, and they 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 gobble up the they're like garbage collectors they gobble gobble up the, the the stuff and clear things away and then they become activated and they bring in the the, the immune, other immune cells like T cells, lymphocytes and so on. Um, so I when I put serotonin on my little macrophages in a tissue culture dish and put little plastic beads around them I could see them actually gobbling those beads up more when the serotonin was there. So, I mean, that was like, you could really see it with your eyes. But when I got to NIH, I realized that in order to really prove that connection, and that's what you were talking about earlier, to prove that connection, I had to see it in a whole animal system of disease. Because just to say that a nerve chemical activates immune cells doesn't tell you that there really is in real life a connection between the brain and the immune system, nor does it tell you whether if that connection is broken, you get disease. And if it's intact, you don't get disease. So I start to study two strains of rats uh, that were on the one hand, um, highly susceptible to getting a lot of different autoimmune inflammatory diseases like arthritis, like multiple sclerosis, and so on. And the other strain was very close cousins that were resistant to those same diseases when exposed to the same triggers, the same pro-inflammatory triggers. So they would be, both strains were perfectly well and perfectly happy if they weren't exposed to anything in the environment, if you kept them in sterile environments. But if you gave them things like bits and pieces of bacteria, like streptococcal cell walls, they got something that the one strain got something that looked like rheumatoid arthritis and the other didn't. And what I discovered was that the difference between these two strains was not so much in their immune systems, but it was in their brain. And it was in their brain's stress response. And the, the rats that were highly susceptible to autoimmune inflammatory diseases had a very blunted brain stress hormonal response, which led to a very blunted cortisone, corticosterone response. So cortisol. Cortisol is an anti-inflammatory hormone that your body makes when you are stressed. The other rats that were highly resistant to the same inflammatory triggers made a lot of this corticosterone and were able to shut off inflammation as soon as it began. So we did all kinds of different studies that proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that the brain stress center played a very important role in susceptibility to or resistance to autoimmune inflammatory disease. And so at that point, which was in 1989, um, it there began to be, and I wasn't the only researcher who was studying this brain immune connection. There are many ways in which the brain and the immune system talk to each other. But that was the beginning of saying, well, you know, this role of stress and uh, Disease—it's—it's it's not all in your head. It is in your head. It's in your brain stress center. It, you know, it's—but uh, it's not just she-she-foo-foo. Foo. There's something to it.
0: You know, I'm going to back up a second and say, um, you know, we had mentioned actually before we we uh, went live here for recording that the audience here is made up of health professionals as well as community members who are not in the in the health uh, field but are interested in healthcare. I want to go back and just give a quick little definition and explanation of what autoimmune disease is because i think people believe they know what it is and some do as doctors we take it for granted because we you know we we spend yeah. uh more than months sometimes years trying to understand what that actually means
1: well in is, it means that your body turns on itself right auto right. is itself and immune it it turns your your immune system is there to protect you from foreign invaders you know, it's poised to kill bacteria, viruses, and to react when, to toxins and to heal wounds. And you need your immune system. If you don't have your immune system, you die from infection. But uh, if it overreacts, if it doesn't recognize yourself as self, but you, it recognizes yourself as foreign, it will turn on yourself and inf- and cause inflammation, in various organs like the joints for arthritis, like um, the lung for autoimmune lung diseases, the skin for scleroderma, autoimmune skin diseases, um, the spinal cord for multiple sclerosis. So all of these autoimmune diseases are related to the the immune cells turning on yourself and um, basically causing inflammation and um, that's how the disease occurs.
0: Right. And then you were speaking earlier of the mice, for example, in this controlled experiment, they were exposed to a, a pathogen. So their immune response went after that pathogen. Then the pathogen is gone now. And the immune response is uh, deleterious to the body by attacking <laughs> the body. That, that is exactly it. it. Yeah. I just give them that background because I personally, I've always found it fascinating. Uh, before I went into medicine, I didn't understand it. And it, it, it's still fascinating to me. And, mm-hmm. um, and I still learn things every day. So let's talk a little bit about the term integrative medicine, sort of back to the your, your in, initial bio that I was given. Is that a useful term and, and what does it really mean?
1: It's an extremely useful term. Uh, in fact, Andy, we call him Andy, Dr. Andrew Weil, um, actually coined the term um, way back a couple oh. of decades ago. And um, the, the reason is because, uh, again, 30 years ago, It was called this field of taking traditional um, medical practices, whether they're mind-body practices like yoga, tai chi, meditation, acupuncture, or whether they're uh, traditional herbal treatments, that was called complementary and alternative medicine. And alternative implies that you're not going to use the -the state-of-the-art advances of conventional medical you know, space age medicine, that you're instead going to throw all that stuff out and instead use these alternative treatments. Well, the goal is not to do that. The goal is to combine the best of both worlds. You know, if you have cancer, you really do need to get cancer therapy, If you need if your gallbladder is inflamed, you need to get that gallbladder out. You know, the surgery needs to be done. The, the, the pharmaceutical advances for many different diseases are, um, are almost miraculous, and we need to, to, to use those. But at the same time, you want your body to be at, to be able to receive those treatments in the most effective way you want to be as resilient as you can be in order to allow those treatments to heal. And we talked about the stress response and illness. Well, we know that chronic stress uh, predisposes to increased frequency and severity of viral infections, reduced take rate of vaccines, um, speeding of some kinds of cancer growth, speeding of chromosomal aging, uh, slowing of wound healing, so anything that you can do to reduce that load of stress on your immune system, on your body, will help you to then heal together with the, um, the advances of modern medicine.
0: And that's integrative medicine. That's yes. integrative
1: medicine. It's to right. integrate. The idea is to integrate all of the above to pre- and also to prevent illness, to prevent disease.
0: Right. So talk to us a little bit then about what your research and current um, uh, literature supports in regards to the, in one's environment and how that affects somebody's ability to heal.
1: So when I, um, when I was at NIH, uh, the then director of research for the U.S. General Services Administration that builds and operates all non-military federal buildings over 370 million square feet of office space and over a million office workers, Kevin Campshire came to me and asked at NIH would I help him to figure out how the built environment impacts the health, well-being, and productivity ultimately of the office workers that he oversees. And um, and so we began a series of studies. This was back in 2000 using wearable devices to measure the impacts of built office environments on mostly on stress, but also on mood and whatever we could measure. Um, and when I moved to the University of Arizona, I continued that work. And we studied ultimately five federal buildings, um, one private sector building, using the same methods of measuring the stress response, physical activity, sleep quality, uh, posture, um, in response to up to 11 different environmental attributes in real time. And so we really developed a prescription for a healthy building, for a well-being building. How do you create environments that optimize health and well-being? Because, um, you know, health is far more than the biomedical model of health. Health includes everything around you, all the people you interact with, all the physical environment that you're in. And we can't do much about certain things that cause stress, but we can certainly change the physical environment to to minimize the amount that it contributes to stress. And it does contribute to stress if it's not designed right.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm gonna, we don't have much time. I'm going to shift gears to this one question um, or issue that's come up that I've seen during the pandemic, and I just want to bring it out. Let me try to explain it and see if you've seen it. So society is and, and the practice of medicine are much more acceptive um, in, the, in the last decade, let's say, uh, of integrative medicine, but not only integrative medicine, just one's own well-being, athleticism, uh, activities, food intake, and environmental stress. To help uh, in the healing process and prevent disease, but there's been this uh, unfortunate sometimes um, side effect. I will use that term, and it, it happened during the pandemic. Where if you do get disease, then you must not been you must not have been doing a good job. And um, I started seeing that on some websites when I was you know doing um, leading the COVID initiative here. I'd, I'd have to do a lot of research and I'd find these um, almost almost. Um, websites that were degrading towards people who who caught covid and it 's just something we have to watch out for because you can be very healthy, uh, you can uh, eat well, and you can still t- succumb to disease and I think that just goes back to the fact that integrative medicine is is the term is correct it 's integrative you 're using everything to help prevent and fight disease
1: Well, I agree with you hundred percent, and when I talk to people, I tell them it 's not your fault right it 's not your fault you 've done what you can. With our rats, you know, over there were over fifteen different um, over twenty different genes on fifteen different chromosomes that contributed to whether they would get arthritis or not. So if you inherit all all twenty genes, you're go- you're going to be loaded towards getting a disease. There's something that you can do about your environment and your lifestyle and so on that will help, maybe help reduce the, the severity. But but it's not your fault if you can't overcome your genes.
0: Absolutely. So I think it's important. You know, the, the state of Vermont um, did an amazing and is doing continually an amazing job with this pandemic and education and helping. One of the things we kind of messed up on a little bit is we started uh, at some point in the pandemic when we were when we were really isolated uh, from each other, saying you can now hang out with some trusted people. And that ter- term always bothered me because very trustworthy, healthy people can still get COVID-19 as well as many other diseases. And I think they realized that. Right. Uh, very- Quickly. So as we conclude here, just tell us, what are you looking uh, forward to both personally and professionally?
1: Well, I actually want to give a shout out first to uh, the Southwestern Vermont um, Medical Center mm-hmm. or healthcare system, because I spoke here in 2016 right. at uh, the Southern Vermont um, Art uh, Art Center. Uh, And it was a very moving experience because it was a bequest from Susan Sebastian and her family to put paintings in every original artwork in every patient room in Vermont. And apparently it was in part uh, inspired by my book, Healing Spaces. So that was such an incredible outcome of having written this book and sending it out into the world. Um, and creating spaces that are healing for patients who are in hospital. Um, so what am I looking forward to? I'm writing another book, which will be a follow-on to the last book, and I'm enjoying writing it here in this beautiful state of Vermont.
0: That is fantastic. And yes, I, you asked me in the very beginning. I do remember uh, very much now the 2016. Uh, we'll have to have you back now after this book. <laughs> yes, I will. It'll well thank you. Thank you again for joining us on Medical Matters Weekly. We really appreciate it. Well, I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much. I also thank Mike Cutler from Cat TV and all of the staff and crew at Cat TV, Ray Smith from Southwestern Vermont Healthcare, Ashley Jowett from Southwestern Vermont Healthcare. I'm Trey Dobson. Go out and find joy in everything you do, even in the face of adversity. And we will see you again next week.